We're going to be in Mark's gospel today, and our objective is to finish the first chapter of the book of Mark. So maybe that's a milestone in your mind. We're going to make it to the finish line of chapter one, and we'll go just a little further this year before we take a break. Uh, and spend some time in prayer in the new year. So I I think I told you guys this maybe a couple weeks ago, but I want to make sure you always know what's coming. We're going to do five weeks in prayer. Every Sunday in January, we're going to work on prayer, and we'll use a really similar format to the way that we worked through silence and solitude in October. So every week, I'll be preaching on a Sunday morning, dealing with prayer, looking uh, explicitly and primarily to Jesus' life, but also allowing the remainder of Scripture to speak to the idea of prayer. How does it exist in work in the Old Testament, and what do we find in the post-ascension time where the church is born and people pray to God, what happens then and there, and so we're going to deal with it that way. There will also be a midweek teaching each week on our website, so I try to do these just to be a little more practical. I don't want to just give you like an instruction set on Sunday morning. I want to actually herald the good news of Jesus Christ when we get together, but I do think it's important because a lot of us have never been invited in by somebody who has experience in this area. I think that's one of the great weaknesses of what we call discipleship in the Western church is We don't actually invite people to do stuff with us that we're already doing. Uh, It's been so long probably in the life of most of the churches that we've been a part of since anybody's really had a robust prayer life, or if they do, it's a big giant secret and nobody really knows why, uh, that that there's not room in our culture for people to invite us along and show us. So that's what I'm going to try to do, just so you have a fair expectation. We'll do that in the month of January. It's good timing because that coincides with the launch of our prayer ministry. Uh, which is going to be happening somewhere in the month of January as well. So you'll get more information about that, but I just want you guys to know where we're headed. After we're done with that, beginning the first week of February, we'll, we'll spend another probably six weeks in the book of Mark, and that should give us enough territory. We'll see. We've moved slow, but it should give us enough time and, and space to, to get through chapter two. So this morning, we're going to be specifically digging into the last, pardon me, the last six verses of the first chapter of Mark. So beginning in verse 40, working through verse 45, if you have a copy of God's word, you have a minute or two to get there while I give you some context. Um, I want to remind you that we have scripture journals available for you if you want one. If it's uh, fun for you or a helpful tool to stay awake uh, while I'm preaching for you to have a place to take notes, you can bring your own notebook, that's up to you, but we have for you available for free in the lobby today at the Connect table a scripture journal, which has the text of what we're going to be working through on one page, and then it just has blank lines on the other, and that's true for each page of that book. And so that's yours. You can grab it if you want one. Uh, we're going to be in Mark for probably more than two years, probably around three years, and so uh, I think you get a lot of mileage out of a tool like that if that's helpful to you. Three weeks ago, to review where we've been, because we've really been with Jesus for like a pretty busy 24-hour chunk, so it's important to get all the pieces of the puzzle here to understand why he's doing what he's doing, where he's coming from, where he's going. Three weeks ago, Jesus came into Capernaum on a Sabbath morning, a Saturday morning, and he began to teach uh, in the synagogue. He'd not done that in a synagogue, to our knowledge, prior to that, but that was normal for a rabbi to do, so it, it didn't freak anybody out. Now, what he taught was different from what they were expecting, so the venue was similar, and him being a rabbi, that didn't rock the boat, but the fact that he taught with authority, that he didn't have to appeal to or cross-reference, or uh, there's no bibliography attached to his teaching, that was new. It was groundbreaking for him. And the people who were gathered in the synagogue that day, the Bible tells us that there was a sense of awe and kind of a newfound respect from them to Jesus because they were not used to encountering anybody who had something to say that was their own idea, that was their own teaching, and that also had the authority to make a change. Now, the reason that they knew that Jesus' word has authority is because a man walked up in the middle of Jesus' teaching, a man who'd been oppressed by a demon for some time, and he began to yell at Jesus. The demon used the man's voice to speak to Jesus and called him the Holy One and asked him, what are you doing here? Are you here to wage war on me and my kind? Jesus muzzled that demon, kicked him out. Everybody kind of celebrated and thought this was amazing. Peter Peter invited Jesus back to his house where Jesus had lunch after healing Peter's mother-in-law. And then there was a marathon healing session all night long. Jesus got up early the next morning to go and pray. That freaked all of his disciples out. They didn't know what to do about that. That's where we were last week. And following that encounter, Jesus told his disciples that his intention was to not go back to Capernaum right away, but instead to travel around the Sea of Galilee to the other cities that are there. And so that's what he did. Instead of meeting the expectations of his disciples who wanted him to go back to the city they'd been in the night before and continue to heal everybody, Jesus made it clear that his intention, his plan, and his purpose in leaving eternity was not just to heal. Now, it was to heal. Some churches will minimize this in a way that's really not fair to the way the Bible explains itself. Jesus did come to heal the sick, and he did come to deliver the oppressed. But more importantly, he came to reach past those circumstantial needs, and they are needs, but they are also limited by our own physical bodies and the life that we have on earth. He came to reach through those things, past them, and to grab onto the eternal part of a person, what we might call the soul or the spirit, 
part of you that lives inside your body and uses your mind to navigate the world, where your decisions are made. And Jesus said as much to his disciples there at the end of the verses that we were in last week. He says in verse 38 and 39, I came out here, out, in, out of eternity into time, to teach people, to preach the good news of Jesus, that the kingdom of God was close at hand, and that all they had to do was repent and believe and they could enter in. And so in response to that mission, Jesus says, we're not going back to Capernaum. Instead, we're going to walk around the Sea of Galilee and we're going to continue to preach the gospel. And that's what he did. We'll begin reading in verse 39 for the sake of context today, and then we'll pass on through verse 45. This is what the Bible says. Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, and he preached in their synagogues. So he spent a lot of Sabbaths in other cities' synagogues, and he cast out demons. And in that time period, this is verse 40, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, meaning he was begging or asking in a heartfelt way, not just saying, hey, what's going on, Jesus? What are you up to? He was like, I know who you are. I'm here with a mission. He said to Jesus, kneeling down in front of him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus was moved with pity, and there's a little bit of argument about how that word is interpreted. It could mean pity. It could also mean indignation. There's a reason why those feel like two very different things, but the way they're written and copied over and over again is very similar. Either way, Jesus has a very emotional reaction to what's happening in front of him. He's not the same sort of cold, cool, calm, collected Jesus that we're used to. He encounters the impact of sin in the world. He sees an image bearer in front of him who's been basically destroyed by a disease that never should have existed unless people chose to rebel against God, which they did. And moved by that pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched the leper. And he said to the leper, I will. Not meaning I'm going to, meaning that is my will. I want to do that. And then he says, be clean to the leper's body. Immediately, Mark remembers Peter telling the story this way, immediately the leprosy left the man and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged the man, meaning he pulled him in close and said, listen here, I'm not playing games about this. He sent him away at once. He said, see that you say nothing to anybody, but instead go and show yourself to the priest. And when you get there to the temple, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. This comes to us from Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Uh, the Old Testament law and regulation for what you do. If you used to be a leper, but now you're not anymore. How do you prove to everybody that you can move back into town and become a part of society again? Okay, Jesus says, offer this as proof to them. Verse 45. But instead, the leper went out and he began to talk freely about this. Because of course he did, right? His life was changed and he wasn't going to keep that a secret. And, to, excuse me, he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but instead was out in desolate places. And people came to him from every quarter, every quarter meaning every sort of strata of the social hierarchy of the Jewish world and also all kinds of different parts of the region of Galilee. So rich, uh, not rich, young, old, healthy, not healthy, curious, um, those who'd already made their minds up about Jesus, those who were sure that he wasn't who he said he was, all kinds of people came and found him. And he wasn't going into their cities anymore after this encounter happened because he couldn't. He was so overwhelmed with people that he couldn't actually get his ministry done. They would just come to him and try to grab onto him, and it was a very kind of violent and frustrating experience for him when he was trying to mostly teach. Most of these people only wanted healing. So when Jesus walks away from Capernaum in verse 39, he, he makes his way around the Sea of Galilee, and he goes one of two directions. The Sea of Galilee is not a perfect circle, but you can think of it as a clock face. Jesus either goes clockwise, which would take him toward Chorazin and Bethsaida, or he goes counterclockwise, which takes him toward Magdala. You've heard of Mary Magdalene before. That's sort of the region where she comes from. It's an important part of Jesus' story later on, all the way down south to Tiberias. And along the way, he would have stopped over outside of cities like Arav and Cana, which shows up early in the book of John. Jesus does his first miracle there at a wedding, uh, his first public miracle. Um, and, and all of this happens around the base of this mountain that's in that region called Mount Arbel. Now, the first sentence of Mark 2, we're not going to read it, that's where we're going to go next week, but the first sentence of Mark 2 tells us that chronologically, quote-unquote, some days had passed. Now, that's kind of a turn of phrase in the way that Greek authors would write that essentially means probably it was around a month. Uh, one cycle of the moon is a great way for us to kind of understand how much time we're talking about. And that after that period of time where Jesus had walked through these different cities, he does come back to Capernaum, which is sort of his base of operations. And I'm sure there's people who wait that whole month and they can't, they're urgent and worried and finally he shows back up and they go to him and he heals them. So don't worry, last week I kind of implied that maybe he walked away from a lot of needy people and never came back. He does come back, but he does it in his own timing and he makes sure that his priorities remain the priority of the movement that's beginning to build around him. The story of this leprous man who approaches Jesus exists somewhere in that month time period. Between that 
uh, Sunday afternoon or evening when Jesus and his disciples left Capernaum behind, and about five weeks later when they arrive back in the city of Capernaum and return to Simon Peter's house, which at that point in time is known as Jesus' home or his base of operations. The leper, when he arrives, finds Jesus in a city. Now, the book of Mark doesn't tell us that part of the story. Peter didn't seem to think that was that significant when he told these stories to Mark, and Mark wrote them down. But the same story shows up in Luke's biography of Jesus. In the fifth chapter of that book, Luke recounts the same story, and he tells it like this. He says, while Jesus was in one of the towns around the Sea of Galilee, a man came to him who was covered with leprosy. And when the man saw Jesus, he bowed down with his face to the ground. There's a little bit more detail there for us than Mark's account. And he begged Jesus, and he said to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then he ordered the man to tell no one, but commanded him, go and show yourself to a priest and bring the offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. The way that Mark interprets that is as a proof. But the news about Jesus spread even more, and large crowds were gathering together to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses, and yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Now, that's not necessarily a part of uh, today's sermon, but I just want you to notice that again, that that is a theme in Jesus' life, that he's always withdrawing from these big interactive experiences with big crowds of people. He goes away to be by himself to meet with the Father. So if you can, just place a mental bookmark there, okay? We know some facts so far. We know that Jesus went into some cities. That's going to matter in a minute. We know that Jesus encountered a leper. That's unexpected. If you're following Jesus, you would never imagine that a leper would come up to him, approach him, especially in a city. That's going to matter more in a minute. And we know that Jesus told this man to do something. And and the instructions he gave him were really serious and really specific, not just to not tell other people what had happened to him, but Jesus makes this sort of archaic reference to Moses and the Mosaic law and the temple and the priest, and that piece also is important, but probably feels a little bit obscure. Here's what I want to do with you in the minutes that we have remaining together today. I want to try to highlight why the city matters, why the leprosy matters, and why Moses matters. And if I can do that for you, I think you're going to gain some insight into Jesus' life that's going to feel a little bit like somebody opening a window in a stuffy room. You're going to get a breeze that's going to blow across your soul. I believe it. And you're going to feel this sense of longing to know someone like Jesus. And then I hope you'll realize that he's there for you. He's available. You don't have to just hope and wait for somebody like that to come along. He's got his hands stretched out and he's ready. So that's where our bookmark sits. Now come with me forward in time to the 1940s. I know that feels random, but it matters, okay? In the 1940s, a man was born named Paul Brand. Paul was born in India. His parents were missionaries to India. And while he was there growing up, he lived a really sick life. I mean, he was always getting malaria and dysentery. I mean, his parents were not the kind of missionaries that lived in the rich part of town and drove into the poor part of town to sort of love on people a couple hours a day. They made their home in the middle of the part of the city that needed help the most. And that meant that the way that Paul grew up was very similar to any other child that was raised on the streets. Now, this was life-changing for Paul. As he got older, he himself did not immediately surrender to a call to missionary service, but he felt a draw to try to make a difference medically in that world, in sort of the third world country that India was and and the regions around it. And so he went and got his medical degree, and by, I think, the the mid-1960s, maybe 1965-ish, give or take, he was back in India, and he was living at this place called the National Leper, uh, is it called the Conservatory? I'm going to misquote it to you on, on accident. Uh, the sanitarium, excuse me. You can imagine it as a mixture between like uh, a prison and a mental institution, which in the early 1900s was already very similar to a prison. So high walls, big gates, everybody secured, armed guards around the outside, not to keep people from getting into the leper colony, to keep the lepers from getting out. Here's what Dr. Brand did that nobody was willing to do before him. He didn't live outside the city walls and come into the leper colony a couple times a day in a hazmat suit. And he didn't bring one leper out at a time, wrapped in plastic in the back of an armored vehicle to analyze and understand the disease. Dr. Brand moved into the sanatorium. Now that makes sense because what did his parents do, right? This has been his example of what it means to follow Jesus in his life, is you just go where the need is and you trust God with the outcome. And so Brand goes into this leper colony and because he's not just living nearby the people who are dealing with leprosy, but living in the midst of them, He makes groundbreaking discoveries, discoveries that nobody else has ever been able to make because they haven't been close enough to these people and their problems. What he realized is that 
similar to what you and I might call a common cold, but could actually be RSV or COVID or the flu or any number of other respiratory issues, leprosy had been used as a category medically. So I have a cold is a thing we'll say to each other when we don't really want to go to the doctor and get a COVID test because it hurts really bad. We just want to take NyQuil until we feel better, right? But we could really have any number of things that are actually wrong with us. Leprosy is used similarly. You say about a person that they have leprosy or a leprous disease, but it's a pretty broad category. And so what Dr. Brand found out is that there was really one issue that was causing the majority of the symptoms that had been categorized as leprosy, and it was the infection of a bacteria. So a bacterial infection was the beginning of a person's lifelong struggle with leprosy. In 2022, where we live, you can actually be cured of leprosy if you catch it early enough. Uh, The nerve damage that comes as a side effect is irreversible, but if the bacteria has just showed up in your system, it can be targeted, attacked, and eliminated. Unfortunately, antibiotics were not that advanced in the 40s, 50s, and 60s when Dr. Brand was doing his research. He found that what we call leprosy is better categorized as Hansen's disease. And Hansen's disease comes in basically two forms, okay? The first is tuberculoid Hansen's disease, which affects mostly the skin, and the nerves. So if you look up pictures, I debated showing this to you, but I didn't want anybody to throw up on the floor. And so you can do that in your own time if you want to. But you can imagine uh, just how violent of a reaction your body would have if you saw someone who looked the way that your three-year-old might draw a person. That's the best way I can explain it. Um, Instead of the detailed digits of a hand or the digits of of the toes on a foot, people with leprosy eventually resorb their digits into clubs. Um, Instead of having the fine detail of bones and muscle in the face, a person with leprosy, their nerves erode to the point that their face almost melts. I mean, not literally, it doesn't come off of their body, but it droops in such a way that they can't control it anymore. And they they don't give off the sense of personhood that you and I would, where we can laugh or get mad or be excited or yell or be quiet. They lose all of that range of meaning and communication. Furthermore, as their nerves are slowly worn away and torn down, because it takes a very long time for leprosy to do its work, they lose feeling in all of their extremities. The most groundbreaking discovery that Dr. Brand made was whether you have lepromatous or tuberculoid Hansen's disease, both kind of two strains of the same problem. Ultimately, the issue is you lose your ability to feel pain. That's the bottom line on leprosy. Now, when I say that to you, maybe you think to yourself, that sounds really good, actually if I didn't have to feel any pain anymore. Maybe, like me, you live with some chronic pain. I have a slipped disc in my back, so like every few weeks I wake up and it hurts really bad to walk for a while. If that could just magically go away without me having to have invasive surgery, yeah, that sounds pretty cool to me. I like the idea of that, right? I mean, imagine a world where you don't feel pain, where you don't have to worry about any more migraine headaches. You can throw your back out without flinching. You can just lean on the stove with the burner on and not shed a tear right, while your skin sears off of your body. Uh, You never have to worry about another stubbed toe. You can give birth as many times as you want without even feeling a pinch. Imagine that experience. Never again would you grimace at a paper cut or a poorly aimed hammer swing or by accidentally shutting a door on your hand or foot. Painlessness sounds good at first, but when you begin to think about it and about what that would really mean for your life, you can see that it would actually be a curse. Leprosy acts as uh, an anesthetic in all of your limbs, in your hands, in your feet, in your eyes, in your ears, and other big patches of your skin that it affects. And the damage, which this is something that nobody ever really understood before, this is what Dr. Brand discovered from living among the lepers, the damage that most lepers experience comes not from the leprosy, but the nightmare of a life without pain. Here's what Dr. Brand observed firsthand in the 1960s in India. He saw people who were cooking over an open flame drop a potato or a carrot into the coals and just reach down and grab it while the skin burned off the end of their hand and they were irreparably maimed. He saw people wash their faces with water that was way too hot, that was scalding. I mean, because leprosy causes numbness, a lot of times you can't feel if there's an infection or a cut and so you end up carrying a lot more of surface level diseases and infections. Uh, It also changes the shape of your body in certain ways where it's much harder to clean and take care of yourself. And so leprous people often are very kind of over the top about cleanliness. One of the things that would happen a lot is a person would try to wash themselves with hot water and it would be way too hot and their skin would just bubble up into blisters and they wouldn't feel a thing. Squeezing a tool too tightly, traumatizing your fingers so badly that your body eventually resorbs them back into your hand and you lose them. In the absolute worst case that Dr. Brand observed in India, leprous people would sometimes wake up in the morning 
to discover that rodents had chewed away their toes in their sleep. He referred to Hansen's disease more than once as a quote-unquote painless hell. Now, although a life without pain sounds good at first, the leprous man in Mark 1 and Luke 5, his life was more of a living death than I think the text cares to make immediately obvious to you. This is why I'm taking the time to explain this. I want you to really grasp the life that this man brought with him, his experiences, and the great burden that he carried everywhere that he was. If you look back at the account in Luke's gospel, I want you to watch the scene play out again, but this time, let's just imagine that the lights are on in the room a bit more for us than they were before, okay? So while Jesus was in one of the towns, this is Luke 5, 12, a man came to him who was covered in leprosy. So this is in early stages. This man has lived long enough that it's immediately clear to everybody around him that his entire body has been taken by this disease. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed down with his face to the ground and he begged him, saying to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now the reason I want you to understand how bad leprosy is is The man is not asking Jesus to simply remove a rash. He's not asking Jesus for a divine bottle of lotion to help with his psoriasis. He is saying to Jesus, I need you to reverse the desperate condition of this vessel that I live inside of. I need my fingers back, Jesus. I want my face back. I want my feeling back. I don't know if it's even hot outside today. I can't feel any of it. I want you to make me clean. And it's that kind of person to whom Jesus stretches out his hand. Not carefully so it only touches the rags that the man is wearing, Jesus grasps a man that nobody has probably touched in decades on purpose, reaches out and makes skin-to-skin contact and says, you know what, I am willing to do that. And then he speaks to that man's body in the same way that he spoke to creation in the first two chapters of Genesis. He commands it. He says, be clean. Cells and tissues and organs and bones change right now and be clean. And the way Peter remembers it, it just happened. I mean, you blinked your eye and there was a different guy down there on the ground. Same clothes, same position. Jesus is still touching him, but he was different, totally and completely new in a way that was bottom line impossible for anybody else to reproduce with surgery or therapies or medication. You couldn't do what Jesus did. It was statistically a 0% chance, and Jesus did it with a gentle touch of his hand and the command of his voice. This man had not received a hug or a kiss from his wife in probably longer than he could remember. This was a man who could not hold his children's hands, a man who had likely not been touched by another living person in a very long time, including the people who lived in the Galilean leper colony with him. And don't miss that he's now inside of the city. And maybe you don't know why that matters, I'll tell you. This was by law illegal for this man to do. According to Leviticus 13 and 14, they use the words camp, but that's translated modern into, into forward into modern history as city, once cities are established in Israel. God commands people to not allow lepers to live in their midst because God knows what we don't know, that leprosy is caused by a bacterial infection, and he doesn't want everybody in the camp by living in such close proximity to all become leprous and to become unable to care for each other. So he creates some laws and boundaries that require that a person who's given this kind of disease, who, who, who grows this way through leprosy, to never be allowed to come back into the city. They can't participate in giving of offerings, which ultimately means that they cannot make restitution for their own sin. That means that they stand as unclean, not just physically, but spiritually and ceremonially. They're as bad as if a pig walked into the temple, treated exactly the same way, herded out as quickly as possible with as few people making contact skin to skin as they can help it before they get that person or that animal outside of the city gates. So for a man with leprosy to get word of this Jesus who has just had this marathon healing session all night in Capernaum and to figure out where that Jesus is, again, Jesus is not posting geotags on his Instagram. He's a hard guy to find if you don't know what's going on. This man gets word, he figures out where Jesus is going to be. Jesus is in the middle of teaching, surrounded by a crowd of people who legally should not ever make contact with a leper, and the man cuts through that crowd to get to Jesus. If it's not immediately clear, from the time he steps foot across the threshold of that city, he comes inside the walls, wherever it is that Jesus is, the clock is ticking until the city guards come and get him. And because he broke God's law from the Old Testament by entering a city, Legally, he could be killed. He could be executed outside the city gates once he was run off from Jesus in the crowd. And so there's a timer ticking in my mind when I read this story. From the time that the man hits his knees in front of Jesus 
and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. We, along with the rest of the crowd, are just waiting for the guards to show up. If Jesus doesn't do this fast enough, if he doesn't do it right now, to use Mark's favorite word, immediately, this man is not just going to lose his chance at healing. This will be the last day of his life on earth. So he comes to Jesus. Shock has rippled through the crowd. Everybody's probably lowered their voices, and they fixed their eyes on these two men. There's this leper laying on the ground at Jesus' feet a mass of deformed and, frankly, rotting skin and rags. And there across from him is Jesus of Nazareth, right? A guy we said last week who is a a revolution in human form. We don't know what to expect, but we should probably expect the opposite of what our instincts tell us to expect, right? Anytime that Jesus moves or acts, we should be prepared for him to do something that breaks some kind of mold, that cuts through the stigma and gets to the heart of the person. Before Jesus acts, the leper shouts out, Sir, if you would just consider for a moment whether or not you can heal me, I am sure that you can do it. I know you can make me clean. And then there's the pause. All the drama, the tension of the moments between the end of the leper's speech and when Jesus communicates back. The leper's man has laid it all on the line by choosing to come inside the city. As I told you, he's already condemned himself to death. There's no next step for him. There's no plan B. It's all or nothing for him at the feet of Jesus. And he's waiting to see if Jesus of Nazareth is really as good as the stories say that he is. I mean, it's only been a few weeks since Jesus Jesus first taught in the synagogue. This man's thinking to himself, if this rabbi has the authority to cast out demons, we've never seen a rabbi like that before. Surely he can do the impossible. And because this man is a Jewish man living in a Jewish region, he knows Leviticus 13 and 14 very well. He was probably given a hand-copied letter filled with those instructions as soon as his leprosy was diagnosed and he was moved outside the city into the leper colony. One of the things a leper has to do, according to those chapters, is wherever they go, they are required to yell as loud as they can, unclean, unclean. Can you just imagine going to a restaurant after church today, if there was somebody sitting three or four booths over from you, where every 30 seconds at the top of their voice they yelled, unclean, every time a waiter walked by, if you bumped up against their arm, suddenly you have to go home and burn all your clothes. This man does not fit. There is no category where people can tolerate him. There's no ADA laws that require him to have equal access to businesses and movie theaters and schools. He is the epitome of an outcast. He's almost less than human. I mean, in essence, he's really a negative quantity when it comes to his social standing because he doesn't just not exist to people. When he's around, he messes up their day. Anybody who meets them has a bad day. Because now I have to go to the temple and burn my clothes and do seven days of ritual washing and I can't sleep with my wife and I can't touch my children and all these things become incredibly complicated simply because this man has walked too close to me on the street. So here comes a man, people may know his voice from the times that they travel between Capernaum and Bethsaida or between Gennesaret and Bethsaida or whatever. His leper colony is probably just off the road somewhere in the mountains. And they're used to getting close enough that they can hear the dull roar of 40 or 50 people yelling every 30 seconds or so, unclean, unclean. And here he comes, and he doesn't announce himself as unclean. He goes right for Jesus. He's on his knees. He's waiting to see what will Jesus do. In a tragic irony, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, this man may not even really fear death because he probably won't even feel the spears as they pierce his body if he has to be executed that day. The crowd waits, the man waits, and Jesus says the thing that this leper has hoped Jesus would say but probably felt like impossible to count on. Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, I want to. I want to heal you. Something that nobody's ever told this guy before. There's no Paul Brand, okay, in 30 AD, living among the lepers, trying to help and serve and heal. These people are destitute. They are rejected. They are alone. They have nothing to offer, and no one's offering them anything. And now this rabbi, the hottest on the rise, new star in the Jewish community, looks this guy in the eye, and he says, I do want to heal you. But that's not the most important part. It's not just that Jesus has the compassion and empathy to want to connect with this guy. Then he puts his money where his mouth is, and more specifically, his hand. He touches a man who is by law untouchable and he says to the man's body, you're different now. I'm not asking. Change. Become clean. Jesus has in his mind a picture of a person without this disease, without scars, without evidence, without any reason for this man's life to stay the way that it has been for decades and he says to him with a touch that probably the man doesn't even feel. Don't miss that. 
His head is bowed down, Luke told us. He's looking at the ground. He, he probably doesn't even know that the master's hand is on him until suddenly he can feel it. For the first time in a long time, he can tell that's the pressure of a human hand. His eyes look up and his body has done what it was told to do, and he's healed. Jesus commanded it and the man became clean. He became whole again at Jesus' touch. Just like Simon's mother-in-law in Capernaum, Jesus' whole mission was summed up in that touch, condensed into the contact of skin on skin between God and the flesh and a man who barely existed to the people around him. When he was 82 years old, Dr. Brand wrote a book about his experience with the human body. Uh, the name of the book is Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and he deals with the nature of the body as a vessel that carries the eternal beings that you and I are, because whether you know it or not, you're going to live forever, just not in the body that you have now. I want to read you a quote from that book that's really formed my personal understanding of the value and the significance that Jesus placed on physical bodies. And I'm, I'm going to warn you, it's a little bit of a longer quote than I normally do, but I think it's important, and I want to share this with you. So he says this. He wrote, I've sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed, many of whom must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, and smelly. With his power, he could easily have waved a magic wand. In fact, a wand would have reached more people than a touch. He could have divided the crowd into affinity groups and organized his miracles, paralyzed people over here, feverish people over here, people with leprosy there raising his hands to heal each group efficiently, in mass, but he chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease. If so, why did he leave so many unhealed in the world? Why did he tell followers to hush up the details of their healings? But rather, Jesus' ministry was a ministry to individual people, some of whom happened to have a disease. He wanted those people, one by one, to feel his love and his warmth and his full identification with them. Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. Jesus wanted that man in Galilee, who hadn't felt anything in so long that he couldn't remember what touch even felt like. Jesus wanted him to feel the love and the warmth and the full identification that Jesus had with him. To the crowd, this man is almost a different category of creature. When Jesus looks out at the crowd and the guards and his disciples and this leprous man, he sees one category of person, lost. People who don't have answers. People who don't have any real hope. Sure, maybe some of them are going to go home to their family and they're going to act happy and they're going to have fun for a few hours that afternoon or that evening, but in their soul, they're no different from that leprous man. They themselves have been rejected by God because of their uncleanness, and Jesus came to solve that problem, to fix it. And so when he associates himself with the leper, it's no great act of self-sacrifice for him. It's just who he is. It's his nature in play. It's not him oh, gritting his teeth and trying as hard as he can to prove himself to his followers. It is automatic for Jesus to see somebody with a need and go, yeah, I can meet that need. I want to do, yeah, I want to meet that need. I'll do it right now. Be clean. In that instant, we get an example of just how good Jesus really is. In that touch, Jesus once again condenses the whole of his life down to one act, his death, his resurrection. It all shows up in what Alexander McLaren calls a condensation of the very principle of the incarnation. I love that quote. Now, moving forward, verses 43 and 44 of Mark 1 explain to us that there's a formula for worship in response to healing from leprosy in Jewish law. So we get the leprosy piece. Now we understand why this guy didn't belong in the city and how scandalous it was for him to even come in the gates to see Jesus. Now I want to help you understand, why does Jesus talk about Moses? What's the point? Why would he reference the Old Testament law? Now, I don't have time to read and analyze all of Leviticus 13 and 14. I mean, I guess we could stay another hour and a half, but I don't think you want to do that. Uh, you can read it for yourself. It's very plainly written, though it's also very hard to understand. Uh, it involves a leprous person coming to the edge of town, sending a messenger in to go get a priest. The priest has to come out and check the person's whole body to make sure there's no sign of leprosy. And then if the priest approves, the person has to take uh, a couple of birds and some specific herbs and a stick of cedar, and he has to kill the bird into a bowl, catch its blood, mix it with water, spray it on the altar. There's lots of stuff that has to happen for him to ceremonially clean himself. But here's the key piece of all of this. There is no recipe in the Old Testament for how to be cured of leprosy. The rites and rituals that God prescribes are in response to having already received healing. 
It's understood, it's implicit, and at other points in the Bible even explicit that only God has the power, authority, and know-how to change a leprous person into a clean person. Now, what does that tell you about the faith of this man? When he comes to Jesus, it's implied in his communication with Jesus by saying to him, you can heal me, he is also saying, you must be God. You are the God that we've been waiting for. You are real, you are a healer, you are here to do what we've wanted done for decades, for centuries even, a deliverer, a Messiah. In the Old Testament, God would do the healing without a lot of fanfare. A person might just wake up and be better. And then they come back into town and they begin to deal with whatever they have to do to try to to communicate to God that they want to honor him for the cleaning and the healing that they've received. Jesus told the man who he healed that he still needed to follow through on those rituals, which is interesting because I think sometimes we think of new covenant Jesus as having very little to do with old covenant God the Father. But Jesus understands that God the Father still deserves the honor. You remember last week and the week before that we looked at later in the book of John, both John 5 and 14, Jesus says, I don't do anything unless the Father's already doing it. What you see in me is already happening behind the curtain of eternity in the person of God the Father. So what that tells us is, is Jesus is still all about you and I returning praise and worship to the Father when we've experienced a miracle. Jesus is not satisfied, and this is a beautiful picture of the Trinity in play, he's not satisfied to receive all the glory himself. He sends the man back to the temple where he can show proof that he's clean and there he is still supposed to take the exhausting steps that are necessary to give offering and praise God for the healing that he's received. Mark tells us at the end of chapter one that Peter remembered this day as being a turning point for Jesus. After word spread about a leper being made clean, a thing that nobody had ever heard about in their lifetime, that's when the rumors of Jesus' divinity really started spreading fast. And you might argue with that. You might think, Well, but didn't he just exercise a demon like two or three weeks before this? Didn't he do a lot more demons later that night? Wouldn't that be enough? Well, probably it's one thing to have a demon-oppressed man claim that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, what are you going to believe that a demon-oppressed person is shouting, right? I mean, you kind of get used to disqualifying and, and not listening to people who seem to be a little bit crazy or unhinged. But when a person who has no reason to lie and every reason to tell the truth, and can give physical evidence on every square inch of his skin that God is who he says he is, that's a testimony that goes a little farther and seems to create a little bit more um, legitimacy for Jesus' reputation. As Peter recalled that after that day, they all had to stay outside of the other larger towns around the Sea of Galilee until they returned to Capernaum at the end of that month, which happens in Mark chapter 2-1. So that's Mark chapter 1, okay? Let's review where we've been so far. We've moved with Jesus from ancient Hebrew prophecy into the legacy of John the baptizer. We went with Jesus into the waters of the Jordan River. We spent 40 days with him in isolation, fasting and praying and sharing presence with the Father in preparation to once and for all neutralize God's enemy, Satan, and his influence over human nature. Jesus came back to Galilee where he recruited Peter and Andrew, James and John, and also very likely Nathaniel and Philip. Nathaniel eventually is called Bartholomew later on in the book, uh, but that shows up in some of the other gospels. So he has either four or six disciples right now. He teaches in the synagogue at Capernaum. He confronts an oppressing evil spirit. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals the sick and oppressed in Capernaum. And then he retreats again into solitude and silence and prayer. And then he has this encounter with this leprous man in one of the cities around the Sea of Galilee. So what's the point of all of that? If we take a step back from any one of those stories and try to view them more broadly and more generally, what's a takeaway for you and I from these first five weeks of Jesus' public ministry? Now, the Bible's always meant the same thing, okay? So I'm not here to reinvent the wheel or try to draw some new insight that no other Christian has ever thought of. If I ever do that before, you guys just fire me, okay? If I'm like, nobody else knows this, it's a Christian secret. Christianity's not a secret. It's always worked the same way. God's the same God, so that's not the point. In fact, I wanna lean into that truth so much that I wanna take you back to the early church. Within the first 300 years of the life of the church, there were a handful of authors who tried to interpret and communicate about this specific chapter, Because Mark's gospel is the oldest and first of the written gospels, this first chapter is really the prelude to Jesus in the ancient world. These stories, these 45 verses, part of the reason why I wanted to go so slow with you through these is this is as far as most people would make it before they would make their mind up about Jesus. We see Jesus' divinity on display. We see his kindness and compassion. We see him rewriting the rules, shocking and overthrowing the old school way of teaching with a new authoritative way that's rooted in his own identity. 
We see him spending time with people. We see him still observing parts of Old Testament law, which shows us that he's not here to abolish it, but that he himself fulfills it. It is as close to a summary chapter in the Bible about who Jesus is as you're going to get. So what's the takeaway? Well, in the early church, specifically in the first two or three hundred years, the primary theme taught from Mark 1 was this, that once you have been spiritually cleansed by Jesus, here's the practical application, the physical world around you can also be redeemed, and you can actually enjoy following God. Go figure. Now, you and I live in the wake of Dr. John Piper, okay? So you've probably, if you went to a college Bible study between May of 2020 and today, you've probably heard somebody say, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, okay? I'm not picking on Dr. Piper. He's way smarter than I am, and he's been a faithful preacher for a long time. But the idea that we can enjoy God and that eternity has to do with enjoying God, that's not new for you and me. But it was groundbreaking for the early church. The, the spiritual survival of persons prior to Jesus was built upon their ability to begrudgingly get their behavior right. That's all of human history before Jesus shows up. Pick your world religion, not just Judaism. And then past Jesus, any other faith system that gets built or comes along on the scene, the goal is always grit your teeth, get through it here, and there's some kind of nirvana or eternity or higher plane of existence waiting for you, where whatever the thing is that you think people need the most is, is there. If it's golf or it's sex or it's wine or it's rest or whatever, that's the way that the world religions build the whole thing, is they tell you you got to get it right here, and if you punch your ticket enough times, you can get on the magic train that takes you to heaven when you die. Jesus is totally countercultural to that, and his church knows it. They're communicating that there is a way of life that is built into Jesus, that is available to you and I, that flips that thing on its head, that tells us that the enjoyment of God, the pleasure of life, the good life, if you will, is actually available to you now, that that's what Jesus is demonstrating over and over and over again. Now, I'm not picking on churches that invite you to bow your head and pray a prayer and repent. Repentance is good, and it happens by way of prayer. But not once in 45 verses does Jesus have anybody come down front, close their eyes, and repeat after him. He is inviting them into a life with him. Now, we pray and we close our eyes because we get distracted easily. That's the whole reason if you never knew why people do that. It's because they want to pay attention to what they're doing. That's not bad for us to do. But the appeal that we ought to be making and the only appeal that really works for us to respond to is the appeal to live a life with God. That's the first chapter of Mark. That's the early church's closest thing to a gospel tract that they had. To make an appeal to a Jesus who could change your life in a way that starts right now. That's the point of Mark using the word immediately hundreds of times in the chapters of his book. Now, what I want you to understand today, here's the practical application of this for you. Reconciliation between God and creation is supposed to be good, and because we are hardwired to want it, it's supposed to be pleasant. In the late 300s AD, a guy named John was born. He eventually becomes one of what we call the patriarchs, the church fathers. Uh, he grew up in Antioch. He was eventually made Archbishop of Constantinople, where he gained the nickname Chrysostom. So if you've ever heard of a guy named Chrysostom or John Chrysostom, Chrysostom simply means golden mouth, which doesn't sound like a compliment, but it was in his day. It meant he was a very good communicator and orator, one of the best preachers of the early church. Now, around that time, in the 300s, the church was beginning to formalize, so kind of there was structure coming into play, and globalize. They were going to take this thing worldwide, and Chrysostom began preaching against the earliest version of what I call the church industrial complex. So abuse of power and the church being a game or a mask or a place where having more money means you have more standing in God's kingdom. John Chrysostom was here to cut all that garbage out and get people to Jesus. Now, interpreting Jesus' interaction with the leprous man in Mark 1, he said this, I think this will be helpful to you. He said, if Jesus cleansed the man merely by willing it and by speaking it, why did he also add the touch of his hand? For no other reason, it seems to me, than that he might signify by this that Jesus is not under the hand of the law. This is critical that you understand. But the law is in his hands. Hence, to the pure in heart from this moment forward, from now on, nothing is impure. Jesus touched the leper to signify that he heals not as a servant, but as Lord. For the leprosy did not defile his hand, but his holy hand cleansed the leprous body. Now in that quote, John Chrysostom makes a sort of thinly veiled reference to another passage of scripture. I don't know if you caught it or not, but he's referencing the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus, one of his apprentices, where Paul says this, 
He says, to the pure, all things are pure. That's what Chrysostom's getting at. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. There's the spiritual application of having your body made unclean. Okay, Paul's stretching what's going on in Mark 1 to apply to the way that you live your spiritual life. He says, these people who are defiled profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So it does come back to their bodies, the way that they actually live their life in this short-term vessel that they have to hold their eternal soul. It's actually very much connected to whether they believe and whether they're pure of heart or not. They deny God by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The early church interpreted Jesus in Mark chapter 1 as being a living application of Paul's teaching in Titus 1. They were equivalent in the days of the early church. They took the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus, and it was an immediate application, the whole thing of what Jesus is doing in the first 45 verses of the book of Mark. Why does Paul need elders to be raised up? Because there's knuckleheads in every church who don't get it, and they don't believe, and they're here just to fit in or feel good or prove to themselves that maybe they'll go to heaven when they die. And Paul says it's the responsibility of elders. That's all the verses, the first 14 verses I didn't read to you from Titus 1, is juxtaposed against these people who are defiled, who don't believe, and don't want to. Paul says that's spiritual disease, so we need shepherds in the church to help fix some of that. But what does that disease look like? He says it in Titus 1. He says their minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they don't. That's the key. They would say to you, I'm a Christian, but they aren't. Did you even know that that category of person exists? And did you know that the solution to that problem is elders in a local church? That teaching and caring and loving and shepherding is part of how we help people who say they believe but don't really either change or leave. And the application of that is this for you and I. That when Jesus touches a man with leprosy, he gives us an example of how you, a person who has been made pure in heart, approach someone who is not. Elders don't carry a big stick, deacons don't draw their weapons, and church members don't cannibalize each other. We reach our hands out in compassion, and we say, I do will, I do see you, I will help, I want to see you change. To the pure in heart, all things are pure. And then by God's grace, if the church does its job, that person who says they believe but don't, believes. And then they're changed, and then all things become pure to them, and we can stop having to police each other's behavior all the time. We can stop freaking out about what our kids are going to bump up against at public school, or whether or not they're going to maybe be exposed to somebody who has a different sexual identity than we're comfortable with, or that the Bible would teach on. We fear sometimes that these kinds of things are contagious, okay? I'm a child of the 90s. I remember the tail end of the AIDS epidemic. And the fear that swept the world that you could bump up against somebody and you might be given this terminal illness. We treat social issues like this sometimes. And Jesus is showing us that we've been given a unique tool set by, me, be made, excuse me, by being made pure in heart that we can interact with people like that without having to worry that we're going to catch the thing that everybody's convinced is contagious around us whether it be gossip within the church or it be the slander of God's name outside the church or it be the radicalization of people in the political world, whatever it is that you look at and go, I don't know how this problem gets solved. I think Jesus is just gonna have to come back and I don't know, burn all the news stations in the world to the ground. I don't know how we get over this. The solution, according to Jesus by example and Paul by teaching, is purity of heart. It's being willing to go with Jesus into those dark places to make contact with people who nobody else will make contact with and show them a demonstration of love and mercy that says, not only do I see you, but it is my will that you be made clean too. Now, I'm not Jesus, so I don't get to lay hands on you and instantly your body transforms. But as an elder of the local church, as a person who has access to God's word and the Holy Spirit to live with God every day, I can do a lot for you. I can listen, I can pray, I can support, I can counsel, I can hold a, a firm line and create some helpful boundaries for you. I can't make you change, but I can lead you to Jesus. And if you'll get to him, he will change your life. For the spiritually impure, those who Jesus refers to again and again in the Gospels as lost, as wandering sheep, redemption is never the sum of doing your best plus giving away some of your money plus trying to be nice to the people around you. Maybe I can simplify it further for you. If your spiritual self, the part of you that is eternal, the part of you that inhabits your body and uses your mind, if that part of you is outside the kingdom of God, then nothing else really matters in your life. There's no ground to be gained in any area of your life if you're trying to make progress without Jesus. And if you are abiding in the spirit of Jesus, then no matter how horrible 
or relentless or completely overwhelming your life has become, there is a thread running through your circumstances that will eventually terminate in redemption and in healing and in reconciliation, and that's where your hope comes from. It's that thread. It's that to the pure in heart, all things are pure. It's what Paul says in Romans, that for those who are called according to God's purposes, the Father is at work to make those things to our benefit. The law, my friends, is in Jesus' hands, and creation is in his hands too. If you grew up in the church, you probably remember singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. You guys ever sing that? It was first published in the 1920s. It's an old spiritual song that came to us from slave plantations. Terrible darkness in our world where people had no choice but to keep their eyes on Jesus. There was no hope for them without that. That song, according to Jesus of Nazareth and the Apostle Paul, is truer than most of the garbage that gets played on Christian radio stations today. Because Jesus does have the whole world in his hands. His hands matter. Contact matters. And you can trust that if you belong to him, he's got you in his hands too. So here's where I'll leave you today. I want to leave you with the words of possibly the most famous leper in the Bible, a man named Job. A man whose leprosy came to him in the middle of a season of life where nothing was going wrong. In the 12th chapter of Job's argument with his three well-meaning but misled friends, he spoke. He's laying in a pile of ashes at the edge of the city dump. His clothes are torn apart. He himself has begun to yell, unclean, unclean, according to the law of God. As he lays there numb and isolated and essentially hopeless, with his only glimmer of hope left in that Yahweh will save him, he says this to his friends about the God of the world. He says, in his hand, the hand that touched that leper, in his hand is the life of every creature and is the breath of all the human race. That's either the most scary or most comforting verse in the Bible, depending on whether or not you are in God's kingdom or outside of it. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to bring the kingdom of God near and to swing the doors open to all who want to come in. He healed sickness, he defeated oppression, he set captives free, and he broke through every social stigma that he came up against. And here's the truth for you today. His hands are still outstretched. Whatever the spiritual version of leprosy may be in your life, the thing that has numbed you, the thing that has stolen from you, the thing that has cut you off from people that you love or dreams that you once had or a future that you counted on, Jesus is still here and he still says to you, I want to, so be clean. And come in, and I'll handle it. That's who he is, and he'll do that for you. So let's pray to him. Join me if you would. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your demonstration of mercy and action throughout your story. I pray, God, that as we zoom out today from the individual stories that make up the movements of Mark chapter 1, that we would remember the summary, the idea that you, Jesus, are showing us that once your heart has been made pure, there's just not a lot left to worry about that we can navigate a world full of people who have serious physical needs, who are unclean in this category or that, according to our culture or upbringing. God, that we ourselves can be made clean by you. People who have nothing to offer you, who come to you as beggars, laying on the ground prostrate and saying, if you want to do this, you can. You don't have to. So that's our attitude and posture today. If it's not, God, I pray that you would do that work in us, that it would be our attitude and posture, that we come before you and we say to you simply, if you will, you can make me clean. Father, trusting that you'll meet us there and you'll do that work. We love you, God. We trust you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.